Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Um, all right, this is the 29th class of our 35 class jhana review. Um, some of you might recall these uh, these concluding, I think all of them, these concluding seven, six suttas. Um, we covered them earlier, uh, and they're here for emphasis. Uh, this Samandanga Sutta, subtitled The Five Factors of Concentration. Um, is another look at the, uh, it, it includes another look at the levels of jhana meditation. Um, and the, the four foundations of mindfulness is the Buddha's instructions on how to meditate. Understanding how concentration develops is getting into the mechanics of it. And this might seem a little bit confusing. And if it is, please ask me or one of the other teachers here. Um, as with all the suttas, it's not something to be grasped after. And it's a fairly, I think it's fairly plain. Uh, but like Rick Rom taught uh, the seven factors of awakening on our retreat, and he really made it clear that these factors are something that we bring into our practice. And when they're in, in our practice, we recognize them as the, the culmination of the establishment of these. It's not the final development of it. And the same thing with these. So these five factors of concentration uh, are there to be recognized that you have established them in your practice. On one occasion, the Buddha was in Savati at Jita's Grove, Anathapandika's monastery. He addressed those gathered. Friends, I will teach you five-factor noble concentration. Listen and pay close attention. And what is five-factor noble concentration? A follower of the noble eightfold path is quite secluded from sensuality and other unskillful mental qualities. So that's how we begin our meditation practice, isn't it? We establish seclusion from the world, so we don't have a lot of distractions. We don't have music going on or incense or candles or visualization or things. We're secluded from all of that. We find a quiet place. And the Buddha then says, and this is what we do, they enter and remain in the first jhana. So again, these are kind of new words, but there's nothing that, um, you haven't experienced yet. This first jhana is experienced as rapture born of the, that very seclusion. It is accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. The joy or rapture of seclusion permeates their entire mind and body. So if that's not present as a factor of your practice, you can generate joy. And we're not talking about some kind of excited joy. I just won the lottery. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gentle joy, isn't it? It's not a grasping after joy. It's something that you realize 
this is working. This is a good thing that I'm doing for myself. And now you've established that first jhana. And that first jhana is also accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. So the first jhana simply means I began my meditation practice. I established seclusion. I closed my eyes, closed my mouth. And I might get a couple of breaths before I realize that I'm caught up in a feeling or a thought or a thought attached to a feeling and emotion. And what do I do? Zach always has a good answer. You take yourself behind the woods and you beat the hell out of yourself. You recognize that you're caught up in a thought or a feeling or an emotion and you direct your thought back to your breath. That's what directed thought means. The reason why I'm emphasizing this is if you read other books, you might fall into the trap of getting into this long elaborate thing about what directed thought means. Direct your thought back to your breath. And also in that first jhana, you might find yourself evaluating your jhana practice itself. Are you doing it right? Um, you might be judging yourself harshly. That's another word for evaluation. And that's normal. It's okay. But just don't get stuck there. It's also when you find yourself judging your practice during meditation, you also know that you're in the first jhana. Why is that important? Because every we all start there. And the first jhana is part of our practice and will be part of your practice, hopefully, for the rest of your life. So it's okay. There's ever deeper levels of jhana, though. The Buddha describes this, this joy of seclusion that permeates our entire mind and body this way. It is as if one poured bath powder into a brass basin. basin. Kneading the powder into the water, sprinkling more and more and forming a ball of bath powder, saturated and moisture-laden, it would nevertheless not lose a drop of its own substance. This is how a follower of the Noble Eightfold Path permeates their entire mind and body from the joy born of seclusion. We're not losing anything by being completely... Um, completely engaged in this practice at that point. Then the Buddha says, this is the first development or culmination of the five-factor noble concentration. Does anybody feel that you haven't been able to do that? Right? You can say no if it's true, but it's pretty simple and it's pretty direct, and we all can do it. There's nothing special about this until we get to the land of it. There's nothing special about any of this. Then the Buddha said, furthermore, as the stilling of directed thought and evaluation, right? We're deepening our concentration. We're getting a few more breaths without having to go direct ourselves away from a thought or a feeling. They enter and remain in the second jhana. The second jhana is now experienced as rapture or joyful engagement and pleasure born of concentration. So the first jhana is rapture and joy born of seclusion. Now we recognize that our concentration is deepening. It makes us feel good. And again, it's not an excited joy. It's a, it's a real joy. It's something that I, that I know is bringing benefit to me. The joy of concentration permeates their entire mind and body. And another wonderful metaphor. 
It is as if a lake with no inflow is filled with spring water welling up within. And from abundant showers, the cool, the cool water welling up from within the lake would permeate and fill the entire lake. This is how a noble follower of the this is how a follower of the noble eightfold path permeates their entire mind and body from the joy born of concentration. So we do this ourselves. We do it by recognizing, yes, I can recognize that there's some concentration. I now have three thoughts or three breaths before I fall back into a thought or a feeling. It's deepening concentration. And it's important to recognize it and be joyful about it. Because, the Buddha says, this is the second development of the five-factor noble concentration. Furthermore, as rapture fades, so that doesn't mean that our practice is now getting miserable. It just means that that, um, that joyful engagement um, now is subdued by deepening concentration. It's a natural occurrence. It's not something we force on ourselves. Furthermore, as rapture fades, they remain equanimous. Equanimity is just a balanced state of mind. They remain equanimous, mindful, alert, sensitive to pleasure. Right? We're not grasping after sensuality. We're just sensitive to pleasure. Why is that important? Because this is a pleasurable practice, isn't it? We should be sensitive to it, though. If we're looking at it as a task to accomplish or just to get to, let me get through this five minutes or 30 minutes, there won't be any of that. But this is a way of recognizing that you have, um, you have the wrong view of your meditation. It's not something you have to do, it's something you want to do. And is that referred to also not grasping after? Yes, not, uh, not grasping after any of this. Right? This is, this is a natural development of right, John, or right, yeah, right, jhana practice. They enter and remain in the third jhana, which is equanimous and mindful, a pleasant abiding. Does anybody not have an experience of just a pleasant abiding of being within your mind without the need for anything to be any different than it is? Just this moment. Anybody not had that experience? And it's okay if you say, no, nah, not yet. <laughs> you, but you know you're getting it, don't you? Because you're seeing the other benefits of jhana practice, no? With the fading of rapture, the pleasant abiding permeates their entire mind and body. So this is this is a much more subtle level now. And I'm not talking about again something that we that we have to grasp after or is difficult to develop but it's just an ever more subtle level of concentration that we should recognize. This pleasant abiding permeates their entire mind and body. And another metaphor. It is as if a pond is permeated with red, white, and blue lotus, born and growing immersed in the water. They flourish, permeated with cool water from the root to tip, never standing above the surface. This is how a noble follower, this is how a follower of the noble eightfold path permeates their entire mind and body, born from the mind and body from the joy born of the fading of rapture. This pleasant abiding permeates their entire mind and body. This is the third development of the five-factor noble concentration. So that reference to the lotus is also, you know, a lotus spends 
most of their lives, if you ever watched a lotus, if you ever saw a lotus come above the surface, you're seeing something that is rare in the world of lotuses. <laughs> most lotus never come above the surface, but the the metaphor relates to a, 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 a jhana practitioner, a dhara practitioner, that does eventually rise up above that surface. Furthermore, with the abandoning of evaluation, they enter and remain in the fourth jhana, which is pure equanimity and mindful. Being pure, neither pleasure nor pain is seen. They supermeated in mind and body with pure bright awareness. It is as if one were, were sitting head to toe in a white cloth, their entire body covered. This is how a follower of the Noble Eightfold Path permeates their entire mind and body with pure, bright awareness. This is the fourth development of the five-factored Noble Concentration. Furthermore, this follower of the Noble Eightfold Path has refined mindfulness well-established. Their mindfulness is attended to, it's understood, and it's well-penetrated by wise discernment. Excuse me. This last refers to the recognition that your mindfulness is now becoming what we call refined mindfulness. It's not just this modern... Um, mindless mindfulness is always looking for something else to be mindful of rather than holding in mind the, the eight factors of the eightfold path. He's going to read that again. Furthermore, this follower of the noble eightfold path has refined mindfulness well established. Their mindfulness is attended to. It's understood and well <laughs> well penetrated by wise discernment. Sometimes my feet just wonder what I'm doing. Sometimes my eyes just blink out. I can't see. But they come back. So this is another quality or another factor of this noble concentration that we can recognize. And uh, now we're look. Now the Buddha is using the word, with my translation, attended to. So this mindfulness that we're developing is something that we attend to. And how do we attend to this mindfulness? With daily practice. You know, with twice a day meditation, what we learned in, in over there on the retreat. So, yeah, everybody was here on retreat. By continued Dhamma practice, all the things that we talked about in the Satipatthana Sutta over the retreat are developed as a consequence of just establishing that practice and doing what you're doing. Again, there's, there's, there's nothing beyond um, the ability of any human being to develop the Dhamma to its culmination. And like in the Satipatthana Sutta and the Anapanasati Sutta, the Buddha even gives us guarantees that if we, if we just do this, if we take to it wholeheartedly, in about seven years, we'll gain full human maturity, or six or five or four or three or two or one, or maybe even in a week. I think Raquel's going to be there next week. <laughs> it is as if this person, when sitting, knew another as standing, or when standing, knew another as lying down. So, too, this follower of the Noble Eightfold Path has refined mindfulness well established. Look at these silly, almost silly, 
uh, references that the Buddha is giving us. It's as if a person, when sitting, knew another as standing, or when standing, knew another as lying down. That's the most ordinary thing in the world, isn't it? I know I'm sitting and you're standing. We're lying down. So too is this. It's obvious after a little practice. And it is ordinary. It's an extraordinary state, I think, to live your entire life and never realize what it means to be a human being. You know? The most ordinary, extraordinary thing I ever developed in my life is Dharma. I was part of all kinds of different practices in the past. And we were traveling all over the cosmos and seeing this and seeing that and holding seances. Um, and none of it related. Uh-oh, just got live Arizona Diamondbacks and affiliates and I have to go. <laughs> and none of it brought me any kind of um, understanding of what it meant to be a human being and what this human life was all about. Like everybody else, I thought that human life was about getting a lot of things and if you're lucky enough to avoid a lot of things, grasping after right, and aversion. And all of that was rooted in deluded thinking, excuse me, until I found this practice and was able to develop concentration just enough to realize it was working. And that gave me the encouragement that, yeah, I think I finally found something. And remember, I was all alone. You know, I didn't have the, in the beginning, I didn't have a sangha like this. But I was able to understand what the Buddha was saying, despite all the magical, mystical stuff that I had to strip away. And say, yeah, this is bearing fruit. I could recognize that I went from having no concentration, I never knew I wasn't, I had no concentration, to having a little bit. How did I know it? Because I was able to do these things. I was able to look at qualities of my mind that I never even knew existed, much less that I should recognize them and abandon. I thought that greed was good. I thought Gordon Gecko was right. Everybody remember the <laughs> But we all were born in one way or another, believing that greed is good. Grasping after something is good. And to have certain um, goals is a good idea, as long as we don't get stuck in eye-making about them, that we're able to let them... If one goal seems to fall away, like you never play baseball for center field for the Yankees, you don't take it personal. Right? But we're here to, <coughs> excuse me, we're here to, have to be, we're here, we're human beings. We're here to have a human life. And human life is not about getting the biggest pile of gold or avoiding anything else, else in the world. You know, a good example for me of that is uh, you might, some of you might not even have ever heard of Howard Hughes, but he was a multi-zillionaire that, uh, I mean, he did some remarkable things in his life and he lived like he was in prison his whole life because he was terrified of getting sick. He was terrified of germs. And he, he lived not in a, in a calm, gentle seclusion like we developed, but a great aversion to everything out into the world. What a way to live. You know, I always thought it was just tragic the way that man lived. But there's a lot of people like that, aren't there? Then there's some people like me that crawl onto a bottom of a vodka bottle and want to stay there. 
because we can't, we don't understand. I mean, if I understood what human life was about, I never would have done that for years and years and years. But millions of people do it, or we use other ways of coping with our own greed and aversion because we don't understand it. We're deluded. And we do all kinds of things, and we fight with each other, and we, you know, we start wars, we spend too much time on TikTok and all the rest of that, instead of just being present for this moment. So, too, this follower of the Noble Eightfold Path has refined mindfulness well established. Again, not a big deal, is it? Does anybody feel they can't establish refined mindfulness to this level that we're talking about? Do you feel like it's beyond you? Yeah, it's not. One day. Yeah, and that's that's the right attitude. But that, that day is coming, too. You know, it just takes doing the work. Which isn't a bad deal, is it? You know, it's a better promise than most everything else out there. You're you're going to understand everything you need to know. It's just going to take you seven years, and it's a nice practice, isn't it? We're nice folks, right? We're fun to be with, especially when we go over to go over to Julian's act for dinner. <laughs> Their mindfulness is attended to; it's understood and well penetrated by wise discernment. This is the fifth, develop, the fifth development of the five-factor noble concentration. When a follower of the Noble Eightfold Path has pursued and developed this five-factor noble concentration, they have mastered the six superior understandings. There's my words. <coughs> the six superior understandings developed as a result of proper meditative absorption are often portrayed as six higher knowledges. And again, I, I know nobody here is caught up in modern uh, modern Buddhism, but a lot of people are that hear it. And so there's a reference here. These higher knowledges are um, often presented as something uh, supernatural. And when you can achieve these, and he often change them too. Like one of them will be knowledge of past lives, which Many traditions say, you know, you're awakening when you can recall all your past lives. And Buddha never taught anything about that. As far as he's concerned, past lives are just as much of a fabrication as future lives. The six higher knowledge and presented it in mystical and supernormal terms. The Buddha taught a self-contained and complete Dharma practice, which avoids magical and mystical thinking or magical and mystical extraordinary intervention. The six superior understandings are knowledge of per of personal suffering and the impermanence of five clinging aggregates, the arising and passing away of all phenomena. And really the only arising and passing away of all phenomena that I have to be concerned about is the arising and passing away of this life. It begins with a breath, it ends in a breath. And what am I going to do with all the rest of those breaths? I'll make, will I use them to be well concentrated and establish refined mindfulness? Or will I spend a life not knowing what it means to be a human being? I'd rather know. The second one is knowledge of the sixth sense base. We touched on this a little bit over uh, the retreat weekend and in the Anapanasati Sutta, we touched on it. Um, but now the Buddhist 
portraying knowledge of the sixth sense base as a superior understanding. How is that? Because when we're properly using our sixth sense base, this is how we establish our humanity in this moment, isn't it? And I can use my sixth sense base, five physical senses and the sixth sense of, con or of consciousness. I can use it in a wise way with discernment, meaning inclining my mind towards awakening and away from ignorance, or I can ignore it, which means I ignore my own ignorance. It's included in the word, isn't it? If we're ignorant of four noble truths, we're compelled to ignore it. It just works that way. Understanding the sixth sense base is now the ground of meaningful and mindful presence, seeing clearly the manifestation of refined mindfulness or continued ignorance. Three, the knowledge of the suffering of others. Through our own knowledge of our own suffering, we understand the suffering of others. And now we can be truly compassionate, truly sympathetic. We talk about that. The fourth is knowledge of the true and useful meaning of karma and the ignorance that continues suffering. So karma, again, wildly misunderstood, uh, enamored with, in pop culture. Karma is a present moment unfolding of past intentional actions moderated by the present level of mindfulness. Meaning karma is not some grand cosmic behavior modification scheme of reward and punishment. It has nothing to do with that. Again, there's no agency working on us. Karma is a present moment unfolding of past intentional actions moderated by the present level of mindfulness, which means if my mindfulness is refined, Whatever conditioned thinking is, is all that that means. Karma is just conditioned thinking. Whatever conditioned thinking may come up in this moment is just useful for Dharma practice. Look at what I need to abandon in this moment. That's karma. Karma unattended to will tend to make your life miserable because you think you're getting punished. You think things keep things that you don't like keep reoccurring because of some crazy form of karma. No. Your reaction stays the same because your conditioned thinking never changes. And you see, you feel like you're living in a groundhog day existence. Five, the knowledge of rebirth resulting from continued ignorance. So the Buddha never taught rebirth. And the only birth that he taught to be mindful of is what am I giving birth to in this moment? And six, the knowledge of the proper application of the Dhamma and the result or lack thereof of a properly developed and integrated eightfold path. So that it's a superior understanding to understand what the, that this eightfold path is the path we develop. Continuing with my words, this sutta and many others also shows the importance to recognize adaptations, accommodations, and embellishments to the Buddha's simple, direct, and highly effective meditation method in deepening concentration. As the Buddha teaches using jhana meditation, <clears throat> time on practices that are more accurately described as contemplation or using deity vis visualizations or worship, uh, chanting, excessive bowing, or the use of sensory stimulations, such as the ritualistic burning of incense or playing meditation music, cannot lead to the development 
of ever deepening levels of meditative absorption. And the reason why I have all of those included is because I tried every one of them, thinking they were going to bring me some benefit. I mean, I remember times I had incense going, music going, candles going, statues, all kinds of things, an altar set up, and that was important. No. I thought I was, but, but I wasn't. I mean, I wasn't doing jhana. You know, I'd be thinking about that little statue I got of the smell of the incense. The Buddha then says, this person thinks what they want whenever they want and does not think what is unskillful. Imagine that. Thinking whatever you want, whenever you want to, whatever is appropriate for this moment is what my thoughts are reflective of. With, with no... Um, with no self-reference. I am now just a reference point to what's occurring. A calm and peaceful reference point. A mind resting in equanimity. But fully engaged in human life for the first time. Because when we're distracted by feelings or thoughts, by greed and aversion, we're not in this moment, are we? We're either stuck in yesterday or last year or something that happened 10 years ago or projected into tomorrow or next year, you know, when my new car is coming. Through appropriate mindfulness, they understand the suffering of many from understanding their own suffering. They understand the arising and the passing away of the aggregates, reference to the five clinging aggregates. From lack of clinging, they are spacious, free, unbounded, unimpeded, their form has no boundaries and no self-distinction. Which means we really, we, we finally realize that this moment is every, mo every everything that I want it to be simply because I'm here for it. When we're, when we're present for our human life for this moment, that's its own reward. But what else could be more valuable than to be present for this moment? This occurs to a practitioner whenever they are mindful and well-concentrated. Have, have all of you felt spacious, free, unbounded, unimpeded? Anybody not? I know you have. It doesn't last, but I know. I've seen you like that. <laughs> well, that's why we need continued practice. This occurs to the practitioner whenever they are mindful of what concentrated. Their ear consciousness unbound, restrained. Sounds are unfettered and unsurpassed. This occurs to a practitioner whenever they are mindful and well concentrated. Now we're using our senses the way they're intended. When appropriate, mindful and well concentrated, they understand the mindfulness and concentration of others or the lack thereof. And it doesn't, it doesn't frustrate us or make us angry. We don't need people to be different than we are. But we also understand in a better way how to meet someone. If they're not well concentrated, if they're not very mindful, we understand it because we understand where we came from. This person knows a mind with passion as a mind with passion. How do I know that, that, Julia, you have a passionate mind right now? Because I recognize it in myself. I couldn't recognize it in Julia or any other human being if I didn't first recognize it in myself. 
They know a mind without passion as a mind without passion. And that, that's, that's what we're looking for, folks. That might sound like, oh, poor, no, no passion. No, that's a common peaceful mind. They know a mind of aversion as a mind of aversion. They, they know a mind free of aversion as a mind free of aversion. They know a deluded mind as a deluded mind. They know a mind free of delusion as a mind free of delusion. All right. They know all these things. We know all these things because we went from one to the other. They know a restricted mind as a restricted mind. They know a mind free of restriction as a mind free of restriction. We know it. They know a spacious mind as a spacious mind. They know a constricted mind as a constricted mind. They know a refined mind as a refined mind. They know an unrefined mind as an unrefined mind. They know a concentrated mind as a concentrated mind. They know a distracted mind as a distracted mind. They know a mind released from ignorance as a mind released from ignorance. They know a mind clinging to ignorance as a mind clinging to ignorance. They know for themselves a well-concentrated mind supporting refined mindfulness. They know the arising and the passing away of bodies within the continuous endless samsara. So getting just a touch mystical, and again, I struggle with a little bit about leaving this in like this, but <coughs> the, the arising and the passing away of bodies within the continuation of endless samsara. So we all live a life. We all have recognized loved ones that have uh, been born and died, People were close to the arising and the passing away of bodies in the continuation of samsara. These people were born and passed away without re ever realizing, understanding. That's what the Buddha describes as samsara. It's a life wasted in ignorance. But you can even see that just walking through town here, you know, up through town on the on the weekend, and you can even see it at that level, you know, bodies coming, passing away. Yeah. And, and they're all in samsara. Yeah. Or the, the greater majority of them. Yeah. And they're, yes. And, I mean, you can tell mostly because of the at least subtle tension that most people carry mm -hmm. when they're stuck in it. Sometimes it's it's very obvious tension. Um. And it, what do we do when we when we recognize when we're walking down down to Frenchtown and we see all these people walking around in some sorrow? Well, you, you tell them, yell at them, tell them, wake up. You take a breath, take a breath, unite your mind and your body. You, you get that. You get to see them with, with compassion. Yeah. And and but you can only do that if you've recognized all these things in yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's true compassion. It's not. It's not a a, a, a specific kind of looking at someone. It, it's. I understand you, are, and you also understand the limits of what you can do. Which is, mm -hmm. you can't walk up to everybody you see walking down the street and say, "I know you're stuck in some sorrow, but come with me. Come down and listen to that Johnny boy, and he'll." No, because it doesn't work that way. It just mm -hmm. doesn't. In the beginning, when the the Buddha never he. Um, he never engaged in proselytizing. He just established his practice. And first, it was just him, right? And then he came across uh, the, the five uh, friends that he was 
wandering around northern India. And he, he told them what he had discovered, and they decided to join him. And it just built like that. But they never, you know, they didn't advertise anywhere. Um, but very quickly, most of northern India and southern Nepal knew of Siddhartha Gautama. And some people came and studied with him, and some people came to argue with him. But the Buddha's mind stayed calm, peaceful. They understand their associations to people and the circumstances of wandering in ignorance. Ram just mentioned that. That's where we have true compassion of people that just don't know better. But what does it mean? Well, we're not saviors. We're not here to save the planet or save other people. But if someone is interested, and usually that interest will um, be informed by the way we carry ourselves now. People will notice that you're different. They'll notice that you're calm. And they might even say, hey, how come you're so calm? You know, I used to have girlfriends who used to get mad at me because I was always smiling. Why are you smiling all the time? When I told them, they left. They know the circumstances of wandering in ignorance. They know karma and they know rebirth. Their eye consciousness unbound. Listen, it's interesting here, unbound, but restrained. They see clearly the continuation of others bound to endless, endless samsara according to their karma. <coughs> they understand the suffering of others rooted in bad, bad conduct arising from wrong views. They understand those bound to wrong views are also bound to continued suffering. Furthermore, their eye consciousness unbound, restrained, they see clearly the arising and the passing away of others bound to endless samsara, again, according to their karma, because of their conditioned thinking. They understand the release of others rooted in good conduct arising from right views. We see it around us in our sangha. They understand those released from wrong views are also released from continued suffering. Read this. Let me, let me read this. This isn't um, my, in my commentary. The Buddha describes awake and right view as having a profound and penetrative understanding of suffering relating directly to four noble truths. So this is the, the suffering that we really want to understand. Knowledge with regards to stress or dukkha. Knowledge with regards to the origination of stress. Knowledge with regards to the cessation of stress and knowledge with regards to the way of practice leading to the cessation of stress. Now, this kind of knowledge is not intellectual knowledge. It's experiential, direct knowledge. The Buddha's words. Thus, from establishing this five-factor concentration, they enter and remain free of, the, free of the defilements of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. They are mindful of their release through direct experience right here and now. We know it. It's in this present moment. They know this for themselves due to a well-concentrated mind supporting refined mindfulness. This is what the Buddha said, gratified. Those assembled were delighted in the Buddha's words, and I hope you were too. Uh, Tracy, I'm going to go to you first. I'm going to give Jane a little bit of a break about being the first one called. 
Thank you, John, for the teaching. Um, it's always so uh, <clears throat> exciting, I guess would be the word, to listen to these teachings after meditating and recognizing <clears throat> that I'm having these experiences. Yeah. In the moment, not realizing it, but when you then tease it out with the teachings, I'm able to make the connections in my own experience. And um, it's really interesting. The other thing um, that I noticed in the last two days and the sits that I've had is the actual moment to moment experience of the truth of impermanence. Wow. Um, I think I never really was aware that every moment truly is different. Yeah. And um, I, I think, I, I think that I, I've heard people say that. And I think, you know, logically I understand that in some way. And part of my brain sort of like believes that believed that to be true. But yeah. I, in the meditation, I'm like truly watching like instantaneous change, like every breath. And it's, yeah. it's kind of trippy, um, <laughs> but to, to actually like experience reality unfolding in, you know, in that state of concentration is, um, yeah. it's, it's pretty, I, the word, the only word I can think of is like exciting. Like it feels like, wow. Like I, I do feel like I'm starting to understand what the hell's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It's, it's trippy without the LSD. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's, did you hear what Ram said? It's a form yeah. of rapture, what you're describing. And I mean, how do you think I feel teaching these things? I, you know, I'm excited all the time. And I, I want to point out what you said about, about the, the LSD. It's interesting because um, I too have had my own experiences with things and um, the, the start of my interest in Buddhism actually came up pretty shortly after that experience that I personally had with, with, with that. And I realized that, um, yeah, like the, the, what I'm, what I'm seeing in meditation and in this practice is the real version of that experience. Mm -hmm if that makes any sense, yeah. you know, like the actual, like Ram said, like the, no, this is actually reality that experience. That's sort of like a shortcut to an enhanced version of what we're, what we're doing every Tuesday, Saturday together to meditate and then talk about it and see those connections is, I don't know. It's just interesting. Yeah. Well, what you're, um, what you're coming into, into contact with now because of your deepening concentration and your mindfulness of your sixth sense base is just that your, your, your sense consciousnesses, you know, the Buddha ascribes ear consciousness, eye consciousness, nose, etc. cetera. Um, you're just better able to see reality right here. And it is, it's, it's, uh, the the word awakening has such you know mystical connotations but it really is awakening to you're awakening to what it means to be tracy for the first time and that's pretty trippy yeah it's fun <laughs> <laughs> it is <laughs> thanks tracy thank you how are you jane 
I'm fine. That was a short reprieve, but okay. Um, <laughs> now, I am noticing a gradual deepening of my concentration. And I know because I'm present for what's occurring more. So that's yeah. that's the point. So thank you. Yeah, it's just it's just that simple. We were talking about you, Jane, me and David on the way in. I hope that's okay. Uh oh. But we were talking about how, how simply how simply you can you present your understanding of the Dhamma. And it it so helps everybody in the in the Sangha, including yours truly. So thank you for that. So thank you, John. Uh, we'll go to the back row and hit Zach in the corner. Almost in the corner. Hello, Zach. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's exciting to watch the development of my own practice, but it's also the exciting, exciting to watch the development of other people's Isn't practices. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I can so relate to, to Tracy's, uh, comment and I have, you know, having experienced my own experiences, but what's, what's great about this practice relative to other access points to um, being present is that this is replicable. Yeah. yeah. There's understanding here. Yeah. And and you own it. You know, you you have you you have sovereignty over yourself for the first time. I don't mean to put words in there. No, but I just I, you know because I I would use certain things to to get there to to have a sense of understanding. Yeah. And on occasion you get there, but you really don't know how you got there. You don't understand the mechanics of it. Yeah. And this practice is the mechanics of it. Yeah. And and so is this sutta is talking about the five factor noble concentration is the mechanics of it, isn't it? Thank you, Zach. Hello, Mark. Good to see you this evening. Thanks for the teaching. I feel so far from all of you. Uh, we all started right where you are, my friend. But uh, it, it is my understanding that the use of uh, LSD and the mushrooms and stuff like that actually um, removes the all the inhibition, all the safety. Uh, net that allows you to access that um, witnessing of reality. And so perhaps that having experienced that once with uh, biochemical help allows you to experience it here. I don't know. Um, I, 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 I'm, I, I don't know. I, I, I would never tell anybody don't do it. But I don't know that I got a whole hell of a lot out of out of it that led to anything like this. And I and I had stopped doing all those substances long before I started this practice. Yeah. Um, like I said, I would never tell anybody don't do it. But you're much better off doing it this way. You know. So and I, and I know I interrupt you. I'm sorry. Mark. No. Did you have anything else to say before I step um. in? No. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you're here. Hello, Raquel. Thank you for teaching. And uh, I do appreciate uh, 
Tracy commented to me. Um, thank you, Tracy, for sharing. I do have a question for you, Tracy. How long have you been practicing? For Tracy? Yeah. How long have you been practicing, Tracy? Um, well, uh, I've been practicing with this group. I believe I started in July. Um, but I was meditating in before this, but not jhana meditation. Yeah, you weren't meditating before. This. Yeah, <laughs> I was relaxing. Zach, <laughs> you Raquel, I would just caution to to understand the intention of the question that you're asking, because everyone's. I I tried to model so much based off of David's practice, John's practice, but this is an individual practice. And so I think it's helpful to see that there is a path to um, understanding that might be quick for some, but for some it's seven years and some, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's different for everyone. Yeah. And so it can be helpful to know that others are doing that, but I've had that motivation as well to say, well, how long? How long? You know, maybe no more. So there's a difficulty that that can arise and often does arise if we're comparing ourselves. Uh, even uh, I'm thinking of someone that David and Ron would probably know who I'm referencing. Will go unnamed, but this person was well established in their practice. They had come a long way. They often said things that were so insightful but they were always comparing themselves to someone who they seem uh, was more advanced than them. And that's mm -hmm. difficult to maintain a practice like that. Mm -hmm. um, but again, the Buddha taught this for each and every human being to take to it as they will. Um, we lay this out too. We have guidelines for how to practice. We suggest two sits a day, gradually build up to 20 or 30 minutes, you know, come to at least one class a week, hopefully two, if you can, um, and do some study on the side. But everybody's going to do that differently. Everybody has, has different um, uh, amounts of time that they can devote to this. Uh, everybody prioritizes Dharma practice differently. But, you know, I, I would say that you're, uh, you're developing the Dharma practice rather nicely. Yeah. Can you still... Uh meditation before the wrong way. Um, <laughs> the other way. The other way, thank yeah. you. <laughs> and uh, including, okay, I really went to bed, let's do meditation before I fell asleep, that's not the way to do it. So, and I understand better like, the importance of sitting, small things, small details. That yeah. Sitting with the right position and having, and before I thought, oh, in the past, you have those guidance that tells you, oh, you, you should uh, no, no, no noise or have those rituals that, that you mentioned, you know, candle, or, you know, this and that. The other day I, I caught myself so I didn't have time to do it. I did it in the car. You know, I was like... Driving? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was in a parking lot of the, of the gym and I had some time I said, you know, this morning, so I did it. Yeah, it was perfect. Yeah, great. It, it, it worked, but uh, the, the reason I also asked Tracy is because 
before I started this practicing, I was talking with a therapist that said, you know, we can do um, in trial kind of things for, you know, for you to, to, to feel better with my anxiety and depression and stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, she, um, you know, one of the things that she, the therapist would do would be uh, experiment with uh, different type of uh, uh, the, um, not LSD, but um, in general. And, um, the psychedelic. Psychedelic, thank, thank you. And. Um, Your therapist suggested. Yes. And uh, instead, when I spoke with you, you, you said, wait a little bit and um, practice this first, and I did, and I think it's working. I didn't contact that therapist since to continue, to, you know, but I, I'm having results, better, better results. And you recognize that you're doing this yourself for your own right effort. Right, that's important, and we we again we emphasize this a lot. You know, you're you're all so fortunate to have a wonderful teacher like me up here. I am just kidding when I say things like that. I know I'm a damn good teacher, but the you but I could be, you could have Siddhartha Gautama sitting here, and unless you practice it, you're not going to get anything out of listening to Siddhartha Gautama or John Haskell. You know, and that was just, just as true that the Buddha wasn't a savior. He was he, he didn't work magic on people. Many people came to the Buddha, heard what he had to say, and said, it's hogwash, and kept, kept on walking. But many stayed. Enough stayed that the teachings are still here today, so we're fortunate. Well, that's something. Um, so I, I, I think that this whole thing about comparing oneself to others in any aspect is just that. A, a bad, a bad, a bad way to to, yeah. to handle things. No matter what it is, whether it's meditation or wealth or you know mental ability or exercise, it's just. I think just like Zach said, it's we we should um, just do your do your do your own personal practice. Yeah, you whatever, can look whatever at whatever it is. Yeah, you can look at us as examples, and I and I hope you do. I hope we carry ourselves well uh, to be examples of Dhamma practice. But you know, the, and it, it is a it's a simple practice. There's a, a lot of different nuances to it, but it's all framed by the eightfold path. And you know, if you step out of that path, if you make it a ninefold or a tenfold or a threefold path, you're not practicing the Dhamma. And that's fine if that's what you want to do, but you can't expect the same results, right? The Eightfold Path is a limiting path. It focuses us on just what we need to do to develop right view in a calm and peaceful mind. And it worked. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was practicing, you know, what what is called Buddhism for years and years and years, and when I finally figured it out, I, you know, I could have said, "Geez, I wish I had come across me <laughs> fifteen years ago or twenty years before that." But none of that matters. You know, what's most important is that um, 
that you're, you're practicing the Dhamma. And it doesn't matter. I remember there was a guy that um, uh, I, 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 held, I met him in rehab. He was a 72-year-old man, um, drank his whole life. And I helped him out for a couple of weeks after he left rehab. I took him through the steps and I drove him around to a couple of meetings and then he died. And his wife sent me this beautiful note. I wish I could, like, I lost it along the way. But all it said was, thank you so much. He so enjoyed those two weeks of sobriety. He didn't look back on the 72 years that he wasted in, in the bottle. Mm -hmm. And that's the right way to look at this. We're just fortunate to have it now, you know? I mean, I, the, the, I don't have a lot of things like I used to. You know, I don't have oil well, driving. I was going to say I don't have new cars every year and that kind of stuff. But I am so happy with my life the way it is right here today. And I hope you all are where you're getting there. Because that's the point. What's, what is the point of, of having a human life if you're going to be miserable? Right? There isn't really much point, is there? But we can take to the Dhamma and develop this simple practice. And in seven or six or five or four or a couple of weeks, we can awaken, gain full human maturity, and then simply be a reference point for whatever time we have left. And once you're there or approaching there, it won't matter when you started. It's just it won't matter that you're there and you're getting there. <laughs> Thank you. Right, Julia? Yeah, thanks, Tracy. Um, the five factors of noble concentration, and definitely, you know, as you asked us throughout the teaching, they're relatable in terms of my practice, but I feel like I know them better um, through some other experiences, or I have like clearer examples in my mind from the before times, like mm -hmm. before I came here. Um, like I, I'm not a good piano player, but I practiced enough piano player to know how it feels to like nail a piece or to play, like just exactly how you imagined you could or wanted to create that experience to be, or like sunk a three free throw and it just felt perfect. And, uh, no, seriously, but I, I just, um, pure bright awareness and, being attended to the practice those those are expressions that really resonate with me in in those experiences and um it gives me something to look forward to in my practice because i don't have them all the time here now but i know what that lightness feels like very yeah. well yeah. and uh, it's just very exciting yeah and again like zach was saying before but as you're saying now you're developing it and because you're developing it, you own it. And you couldn't develop it if it wasn't a part of you either. You know, we, we can't become something other than we are. We can learn new things. We can learn the Dhamma and practice the Dhamma. But whatever we develop as a factor of concentration is because we put the time in and we recognize it. And it's within us. It's part of our, it's part of our own humanity. Mm -hmm. So, again, that's all that the Buddha discovered was what it means to be a human being we get to do it too. You know? And it turns out that just being who we are is its own reward. Who'd have thunk it? I always thought I had to be something other than I was, always. 
And, you know, this fabrication that I made about who I was was what I wanted you to see, but I didn't want you to see underneath it. You know, there's, you know, there's maybe a successful contractor. That was what I wanted to portray to you. But I didn't want you to know that I was scared to death of the business drying up or whatever else was bothering me. Or my wife leaving me, or my wife not leaving me. <laughs> Depending on the circumstances. But it was always something conditioned. So as we develop the Dhamma, we develop a life that is unconditioned. It's not based on anything outside of ourselves. And everything that it is based on is based on what we are. Here's Ron. Thank you for another trip through the Johns. Not the last one. No. Um, yeah, there's been a few ways through the through the Johns in, in this in this review uh, that I actually found. Um, Enlightening, mm -hmm. um, and it was actually the Sari Buddha Sutta, um, and it was a bit unusual until I looked further on, and there there are suttas where um, the Buddha compares. Insight versus what's the, what's the position here? There's a path of insight. Is it concentration versus insight? Yeah. Concentration and insight, or insight and concentration. Um, yes. Totally about. Yeah. Um, because Sariputta's path is is all, is all concentration. Well, and also remember that that particular teaching that Sariputta gave was also situational. Yes, actually, it was um, Sariputta didn't give this. Uh, the, oh, the Buddha record yeah, uh, reference that Sariputta. Buddha reference yeah. his. Um, experience um, and I looked at that and I realized that that's one of the things that I've been banging up against for a long time um, that I didn't quite recognize the fact that I was seeing the arising and passing away of mm phenomena and that by itself was enough because I kept thinking that that wasn't enough that's a lot of what my struggle in, 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 in meditation was about that I was as I was wondering because I have pretty well established concentration and mindfulness and I was thinking that I was doing the meditation all wrong. And the fact you were doing it right. In fact, I was doing <laughs> it just fine. 
But you're, it was an aspect of your conditioned thinking that yeah. would let you see that. Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah, and it's definitely conditioned thinking and definitely um, almost um, uh, precepts and practices. This was my yeah. practice before, and yeah. I was clinging to that, uh, you know, un, unwittingly clinging to that. I thought that this was the way to do it. I didn't, I couldn't imagine any other way to do it. But um, it, even now, talking about it, um, things are clarified. And that's why these reviews are so, yeah. are so important. Yeah. Because you never know when this little thing falls into place. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's, that's like, that's... We could teach a complete Dhamma, meaning have an intellectual knowledge of what the Buddha taught in probably three suttas I'm thinking of. The Dhamma Chaka, the Saka Vibhanga, and the Maga Vibhanga. Um, but you can have a hard time making a practice out of that right. because it's, it is so... It's not that the Dhamma is difficult, but our minds are so conditioned to ignore our own ignorance. And mm -hmm. that's what's hard to overcome. You will ignore right intention. Well, I'm, I'm, were you finished? <laughs> no, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll uh, turn the camera. Uh, what? No, no, I'm good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> David, I'm sorry, David. It's an equal path. You can think you're doing right meditation, right mindfulness, but if you don't know why you're doing it if you're not right attention and striving toward that right view it's something and it can be pleasant and somewhat effective but yeah. you'll end up kind of like off in the field not knowing what yeah. you just did and that's what the buddha recognized that's why he came up with an eightfold path Right, so we had something to do, you know, so we didn't get distracted. And that's what we're keeping in mind. Yeah, I spent, I had uh, for five or six years every Sunday, I, I sat and I listened to all kinds of other things and chanted and jumped up and down with uh, about 150 other people. We were all nice, wonderful people, and we had a great time. Other times, I used to go to a place down in Lambertville that had. They had a good crowd, and they were again. They were all nice people, but I didn't. I I, I left that that place up in Phoenicia, New York, and with a two and a two hour plus drive, wondering what the hell did I just do? And the same thing with Lambertville. I go get a slice of pizza down there. It's <laughs> a know? nice drive. It is. It's a beautiful drive. Um. But again, it wasn't until I came to this limiting practice, even though there's a lot out there, this limiting practice, it teaches us to get focused. Get focused on what? On the quality of my mind, not the quality of the world, not what I need to have. What's going on in my mind? Which is really what I wanted when I was such an angry and frustrated little boy. I didn't realize, though, that it was my mind that was causing all the problems. What's that? Oh, Do, oh were you finished? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I gotta say everything again. What did I just say? Here's Johnny. 
does anybody have any questions or comments before we finish with Meta, as we always do? Oh, um, for some reason, I don't know why I never thought of this before, but I, I finally did. Uh, the, the, the printout of our meditation, if that's what that is, the printout of our meditation, our jhana meditation, the verbiage that's there, and the Karaniya Metasutta <coughs> are now linked. Uh, there's a PDF, is what I'm trying to say. You can download it and print it if you'd like. Um, and that's on the same, it's linked in the email that you'll get tomorrow. Um, but it's in that same drop down that where the guided jhana meditations are. It's right near the top, so you can see if you I like. Remember there? That was just on the teacher's page? I think so. But there, I mean, further down that page, there's another, now I'm going to change it. There, there was a, a general type of uh, jhana instruction in the verbiage used, but that's kind of ancient. So this, I mean, I, I don't know if you'd ever want to print it out, but if you want to print it out and hang it up on your. Can you mention that you might rework together? Oh, yeah, eventually I'm going to, man, I'm going to hope to do it this week. Um, if the cow doesn't get me uh, to change the, <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. I, I live in Doylestown. There's cows here, I think. Uh, yeah, I'm going to change the, I'm going to change the verbiage on the guided meditations to match what we're doing here now. And I've been meaning to do that for a long time. So I say this week, but. You never know. I'm going to do my best. And if you'd like me to do it and I don't do it, you can mention it to me again. You can nag me a little. A good thing to do for sometimes. Uh, again, any other questions or comments before we finish with Meta? Uh, you might have heard the uh, mentioned, Ram mentioned the six property person, and we had a little bit of discussion about that. That's uh, the Datu Vibhanga Sutta, I believe, is this coming Saturday. Mm -hmm. All right, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta describing the quality of an awakened human being. And let me just explain that a little bit. Metta is not an aspiration. It's a quality of mind as well. And it's so an, an awakened, fully mature human being is filled with metta, meaning they, they, they're filled with goodwill and loving kindness for all other people. And why wouldn't they be? The Buddha's words... This is what is done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They are able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. They remain unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. They are peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. They do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. They are always mindful that all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, 
the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. They are always mindful to not deceive another or despise any being in any state. They abandon anger and ill will with ease, never wishing harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, the wise disciple cherishes all living beings. They radiate kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, they maintain refined mindfulness. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, having completed the path, does not give birth to another moment rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Peace. Thank See you, John. Bye. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.